0: Let's begin. And in the end, Eddie, you know what? You're nothing but a misguided midget arse. With dreams of ruling the world. Yeah, and also from Kew Gardens. And also getting by. You know what? You're nothing but a misguided midget arsehole with dreams of ruling the world and also from two gardens and also getting by on my tips. tax
1: paid for. Hey uh what's up truck holes dick nuts truck nuts dick holes what's up truck nuts what's up dick holes welcome back to the podcast it's been a minute huh um things have been kinda wild at the mall um Questions about whether ghosts are born from eggs or whether they're born from human bodies functioning basically as eggs. Questions about whether the mall itself is alive. Uh, Questions about the ghosts themselves populating the mall, wild times. But more importantly, I need to tell you about Sorry to Bother You. Um, initially my concern about Sorry to Bother You was that it wasn't going to be appropriate for this podcast. Not because it's somehow like not a classic film. Obviously this is almost immediately risen to the status of a classic film. But just like whether, like there were initially there were questions about whether this is the kind of classic film that we talk about on the podcast. Like I'd put it on I was like, okay, this is like, it's like a weird movie. I was prepared for the fact that it was going to be weird, but, um, it's like a movie about like a black guy in Oakland and union organizing and shitty jobs. And I was like, I not like, is this the kind of thing, like full disclosure, is this going to be the kind of thing that I can goof on? Um, full disclosure, fuck yes it is. This is... This is one of the best films I've ever seen. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And in fact, um, uh, you know, you should watch it. You should watch it before you listen to me talk about it because, like, I'm going to spoil the fuck out of everything that happens in this movie, but there is so much good stuff that happens in this movie that I almost don't want to spoil it for you. So there's your warning. You should watch it. It's, it's fantastic. Okay, so, um, open on Cassius Green, like, I don't know, he's in his 20s maybe, like late 20s, It's like, black guy who lives in Oakland who's at a job interview for a telemarketing job, and, it, like, it immediately becomes clear that he's lying his ass off about all of his qualifications, including he brought a trophy to the job interview as like best salesman trophy or something. And the guy is like, did you like have this made just so you could lie to get this job? Um, And he's like, yeah. And then the guy that who's interviewing him is like this like white guy management type is like, dude, I don't fucking care. Like you don't need, there are no qualifications for this job. I just, just need fucking bodies to put in these chairs and make these phone calls. Um, so you're hired anyway, and he gets, so he's got this job as a telemarketer, and they're all like, stick to the script, stick to the script, like, you just do the thing, don't go off script. Um, and it seems like it's, like, a pretty soul-crushing job. He's got a friend who works there whose name I don't remember, um, and he's like, this sucks, and he sucks at it, and then we, we go to him with his girlfriend, whose name is Detroit, they're, like, in his bed, and fuck, I just, I need to get paid, like, I don't have any money, and I owe my landlord all this money, and she's, like, um, she's awesome. Detroit, also, like, Cassius Green is kind of, like, an everyman character in terms of, like, his, like, ambivalence and anxiety and, like, lack of talent in a number of ways, um, except at... Telemarketing, which will become clear. It turns out he's really good at telemarketing. But he's he's in bed with his girlfriend and he's like, I fucking hate my landlord, man. Like he's such an extortionist, and he's just like trying to take my money and give it to his family. And Detroit is like, dude, he's your uncle. Like that's your family. Um and his uncle, who's the landlord, is Terry Cruz, is played by Terry Cruz, who I believe first came to prominence in Old Navy commercial, not Old Navy, uh, Old Spice commercials. I never thought about the fact that Old Navy and Old Spice both have the word old in the beginning of their names. It probably doesn't mean anything, but what if it means a lot? You ever think about that? Uh, Terry Crews is his uncle who lives upstairs. It turns out he's just living in Terry Crews's garage, which he's converted into be an apartment, but Uh, Sometimes the garage door just goes up because probably the wiring is screwed up or whatever. Uh, Terry Crews, also kind of famously bald, doesn't have a lot of hair in real life. Uh, He plays the one in Brooklyn Nine-Nine who really likes yogurt. And my understanding is that this is based on the fact that Terry Crews also in real life really likes yogurt, which is nice. Um, No yogurt content in Sorry to Bother You that I can remember. But he's wearing, I think, fake hair. Which is like, it's not clear why they had Terry Crews have hair in this movie. Like, it doesn't, it's it does not like relevant to the plot. His hair doesn't really come up. Um, anyway, we find out Cassius is like four months deep in rent to Terry Crews. His girlfriend Detroit is awesome they like do some walking and talking and she has a shirt that says uh the future is female ejaculation which is incredible and like when i saw that that was what it said on her shirt her shirt i was like okay this i'm in for something something else and like uh, this is a classic film i knew it by reputation i knew that i was going to be into it but i did not understand until i watched it how much i was going to like it uh so so okay already on tangents cash just gets this job he's fucking terrible at it he calls up and he like he's like hey sorry to sorry to bother you I'm like awkward and then this this other telemarketer who is in a cubicle near where he is is like dude you got to use your white voice he's like I don't really have a white voice he's like no dude just find your white voice and you can do it the other guy I want to say is played by Danny Glover may have that wrong, I didn't check the credits and fully not good with knowing who anyone is but I think it's Danny Glover who has been in movies that I haven't seen but is like a, a person that people know, anyway uh, Cash, Cash starts using his white voice on these these phone calls and like <laughs> at first I was like is, are they, like, that's not this actor doing a white voice, this is, like, overdubbed by an actor. Turns out his white voice is being, uh, is, like, is performed by David Cross, who's also somebody who I don't really know the stuff that he's from, but people care about him. Like, I remember he had a stand-up comedy album that got reviewed on Pitchfork when I paid attention to Pitchfork, um, it was called Shut Up, You Fucking Baby, which is... Kind of a funny name for a stand-up comedy album, but also I don't want to listen to that. Uh, anyway, David Cross probably has a white voice to begin with. Um, I also so I, I've rec- I've tried to record a podcast about this movie once already, but the sound was too fucked up. It like it was all like I don't know. It was like it, was like it my my sound equipment. And the post-apocalyptic, like, Mad Max, like, war wagon, station wagon that I drive have been, like, sabotaged possibly by adolescent ghosts. So, like, I feel almost reluctant to get back into this because, like, I don't want to engage in conversation about the word honky necessarily. Like, I don't feel like that's super productive and I don't have anything intelligent to say about it except that David Vo- David Cross as the voice, as, like, the white voice of Cassius like, his, his white voice, it sounds like it's honking, like, like, like the honking of a horn, like that a clown would honk, it's like, his voice is so goofy, and Danny Glover's character is like, no, no, not like white voice in the sense of like, you sound like a white person, but like, white voice in the sense of like... I've never had to worry about anything, and I know that I'm gonna be taken care of. Like, that's what you wanna project as a telemarketer. And it turns out this is what Cash is good at. So he starts speaking in his white voice, uh, and really just, you know, projecting his sense of like a calling to sell you whatever it is that they're selling. Um, And he starts doing really well, right? And he starts hearing that if you do well enough, as a telemarketer, there's, like, another floor of telemarketers upstairs who are called, like, the power sellers or something, and, like, if you're good enough at this, you can go upstairs and be a power seller, uh, and he gets on track to be a power seller, but also, uh, this new guy comes to the telemarketers whose name is Squeeze. Um, this movie does a good job with representation, just like, such a, like, one one kind of thing to say, but Squeeze is, like, he's, like, an Asian-American guy, his masculinity is, like, not in question, he's, like, cool, it's just nice to see that, and he's, like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've, like, seated unions at a number of different places, and we're gonna fucking unionize the telemarketers here, and he says this in a conversation with Detroit, uh, Cash's girlfriend, and, uh, like, you kind of get the sense that, like, Squeeze is awesome and has good politics and like union organizing is dangerous shit, but he's doing that work. Um Detroit is like on board. Her politics are also awesome. She's like, yeah man, fuck yeah, like unionize, like let's have a picket line, whatever. She's also an artist. We see that she does a bunch of different kinds of art. She's just like great. But Cassius is this sort of like, he's not like spineless. Necessarily, but he's kind of just, like, you get the sense that he's been beaten down by the lack of options for, like, moving forward in his life that are in front of him. Um, He's had some shit jobs, he's got no money, he doesn't have a lot of prospects. So he's kind of, like, he seems a little bit ambivalent about the union stuff. Like, he's on board, he's like, yeah, let's unionize, like, I'll help with that. But his conflict early on in the movie is, he's like, but I'm fucking great at telemarketing. So, Squeeze, like, they they do a, strike, they, they start to strike they make demands in the guys in, in management who include uh, the actress whose name I don't know who plays the character whose name I don't remember Janet, she plays Janet I think on The Good Place Janet being like she like often will be like I'm, I'm not a girl or I'm not a woman and she'll also be like I'm not a robot, she's just like she's kind of like I don't know, I guess replicants can be girls and and women as well as robots, so maybe she's not a replicant per se, or maybe she just, like, conceptualizes, like, maybe she's a replicant in The Good Place who conceptualizes replicancy differently than other people do. I don't know. Anyway, Janet from The Good Place plays a very different character as this sort of, like, middle manager at the telemarketing company. Um, So... Janet from the Good Place uh, doesn't do anything yet. They they like they all put their phones down and Squeeze is like we're calling a strike unless you meet our fucking demands because we demand a like livable wage and these are like really appropriate things to ask for from uh, a job that you do. And but Cash is conflicted because he's like been really good at this job and so he's like down. I think he starts. They start having a strike out in front of the the building. Um, And he's striking with them. And then, almost immediately, he is promoted to go be one of the, like, super sellers or power sellers or whatever upstairs. Um, and starts crossing the picket line, dude. And one of the things that this movie does really well is, like, rather than just being, like, kind of one-dimensionally good politics, it, like, shows why people would choose to, like work against their own self-interest in terms of, like, crossing a picket line or whatever, um, like, it walks this line of portraying Cash as a good person who's making bad decisions in a really effective way. I think they do a good job, because you're not like, yeah, Cash, you should totally cross that picket line. Um, at the same time, you're not like, dude, this is a great idea, like, you should cross that picket line. Um, but you're like, I get it, like, you've been so stuck, you've been so broke. Like, suddenly. So, okay, so he starts crossing the picket line because he gets made a power seller, so he's going upstairs to the upstairs uh, telemarketing thing. Uh, sidebar, what we have also seen so far in this movie is that there is an organization, I believe, called Work Free where you sign on for a life contract of what is essentially slavery, and the characters, like, argue back and forth about whether this is slavery. And Cash is kind of like, I see the appeal, dude. Like, you go to work for this company, you have a job, you have a place to live, you get, like, medicine and food. All your needs are taken care of in a way that they are not taken care of when you are outside, like, trying to make it under, like, white supremacist capitalism, right? Um, although, like the movie doesn't even use that sort of language, right, which I think is appropriate language to use in discussing these things, but which also can feel sort of oh, what's the word? When you, sort of polemic, polemical. Um, if you're not used to it, right? If you haven't, like, if you're not familiar with that language. Which is not to say that this movie shies away from polemicism, necessarily. Just like it's not explicitly talking about white supremacy. In fact, it does this, this really striking thing where, which is, I think, rare in a movie, although obviously not, it's not the first movie to do this, there's just, like, no, like, sympathetic white character to, like, draw in a quote-unquote mainstream audience, meaning a, like, white supremacist, like, audience that's scared of a movie that doesn't have a sympathetic white people, or white person in it, um. Anyway, I think that it's mostly. No, that's not true. Um, I think it's a lot of white people who are shown working in Work Free, but I think it's like a diverse, like multicultural. Like, they're really uh, portraying that is the people who are at Work Free, not the filmmakers. The people who are like doing advertising for Work Free are really portraying it as this like bright and sunny, like quote unquote post racial. Although, I guess that's not actually quote unquote. I don't think they say it's post racial, but that's the vibe that you get from Work Free is this place that's like extremely exploitive, extremely capitalist, and extremely invested in portraying itself as, like, clean and efficient and good and, like, solving problems rather than creating them. Um... Cash, I think, has talked about, like, yeah, I might do that thing where you move into the warehouse and you sign away your life because my shit would be taken care of. And everybody else is like, dude, fuck that. Like, there's no reason for you to do work free. That's that's garbage exploitation. And so uh he goes up to the power sellers, he's fucking crossing a picket line where like he's being protected by like uniformed fucking they may explicitly be Blackwater, uh, Operatives, but he's, like, being assisted by armed police and crossing the picket line to go up to the power cellar's floor where he's, like, taken up in the elevator by Janet from The Good Place, and then uh, he gets there, and there's this guy, this, like, um, he's, like another black man who's got those sideburns that go down but instead of turning into like a beard or a chin strap or something they like go down and then come back up to be a mustache Um, and he doesn't have the like goatee or like soul patch part of the facial hair, he's just got sideburns and mustache in a way that like harks back so hard to like white dudes in the civil war right, like I don't know anybody's name. But it just, it feels like this very, like, like plantation owner facial hair. But he's this black guy, and, and Cash gets up there, and he's, like, talking normally. He's like, hey, what's up? And this guy, whose name I also don't remember, he's like, ah, we only use our white voices up here. And, like, kind of has to continually remind Cash only to use his white voice on the power cellar's floor. And Cash is great at telemarketing on the power seller's floor as well they give him this like futuristic looking office with like glass walls where he's making these phone calls and um, he like he's he's great at it up there and he's making a pile of money he gets like a new apartment with a beautiful view and he gets a new car he man his car before he gets his new car there's a scene where he's driving in Oakland with Detroit and Squeeze and his other best friend and his uh, his windshield wipers don't work, and so they're set up to a string where like he's driving and he has to pull to pull the windshield wipers up, and then Detroit is in the passenger seat; she has to pull to bring them like back down, so they're wiping the windows. Um, it's pretty good, but like again, one of the ways that this movie, one of the incredible things that this movie does, that shows why Cash is so invested in this job, even though he's crossing picket lines and like effectively, like, it turns out he's, he's making these deals for work-free, right, so that, uh, like, he's just so implicated in what, again, is, like, a, a, a new iteration of slavery that people willingly sign on for, right, he's so implicated in all this really morally indefensible shit, but at the same time, he's, like, the work that he's doing, Right, which is what he's spending most of his time doing. He's at work. He's working long hours. He's obviously working at least forty hours a week, but he's working into the nights. We see that he's doing. He's like always at work, and he's really fucking good at it. And he's really fucking appreciated for being good at his work. Right? We see very clearly the appeal of having one of these jobs where you're doing so much damage, and like why someone who like he's not getting fucking appreciated by anybody except his girlfriend. Right? Detroit is like you're great, but uh, you know in in a. Uh, uh, what one can only read is a critique of patriarchal work as well. He doesn't really appreciate Detroit appreciating him. He doesn't really appreciate her. Like, he knows he needs to be with her. It's this sort of, like, compulsory heterosexuality stuff. And it's not like he doesn't like her. He just, like, doesn't really listen to her um, or appreciate her. So, like, she's like, dude, this is bad. And he's kind of like, you don't get it, man. Like, my work is is important to me, I'm really appreciative while I do this work, and so again, like, it's it's a more complicated presentation of this stuff than you usually get to see in movies, um, while at the same time being totally fucking bonkers, like, he's, I think, in the process of breaking up with her when, uh, she has her, her big art show that she's super stoked about, he, like, goes to it in his nice car, and We've, like, seen some of her work. She's got these big, like, sculptures of Africa on the walls of the space that she's going to be doing this art project. But her big opening also has a performance piece to it. And, dude, this performance piece, like, up until this point, I was like, yeah, this movie rules, but this movie is not, like, over-the-top. Like, this movie is not earning the golden dickhole or but What the fuck even is it that I say on this podcast? I invented a golden... A truck nut or a golden dick hole at one point for another movie that I don't remember what it was. This was the moment when I was like, Oh, we have a second movie that's getting the golden fucking dick hole or whatever, because all these people are there for her opening and for her performance art piece, and Cash shows up and she gets up on stage and the lights go down and she's like, I want to thank you all for coming. And okay, so time out on that. Right, there's a movie that I have not done on this podcast yet. And it's infuriating that I haven't done this on this podcast yet because it's one of the best movies in the whole world and one of the movies I've seen more than any other movie. And now that I'm thinking about it, maybe I have done an episode of the podcast about it and then forgot because my memory is terrible because you shouldn't smoke weed every day. Uh, not that I smoke weed every day. The point is, The Last Dragon, uh, a movie from, I want to say, 1985, 1986, that golden era of when the best movies were coming out. Um, the Last Dragon, I think, is technically titled Barry Gordon... What's his name? Barry Gordy? I don't remember exactly what his name is. This is a theme this episode. I don't know what the fuck anybody's name is. Uh, he was, like, the head of Motown, and apparently, in the like early to mid-80s, he was like, I'm done with producing some of the best music that's ever been written and recorded, what I want to do now is make movies that are utterly fucking bonkers. And so I don't know if he made any other movies that are, any other movies at all, but I know that he made The Last Dragon, and it's a movie about a, like, young black man who's really into Bruce Lee and martial arts, and, like, really invested in living this, like, zen martial arts lifestyle, but he's in, I want to say the Bronx, um he's in, like, 80s, the Bronx, and so he. there's, like, this guy who's the Shogun of New York. I, I don't want to tell you too much about it, because if I haven't done it on this podcast, I need to fucking do this movie on the podcast. The point is, in The Last Dragon, the, the, like, he's framed as the head villain, like, the primary antagonist, although he's really kind of a puppet master who is dispatched before... So, like, this guy, Eddie Arcadian, who owns, I think, a, a series of video game arcades, uh, has hired this guy, the Shogun of New York, who has his own gang, who's, like, the coolest looking motherfucker. This is, like, everything in this movie is so awesome. And Shogun and his gang, he's also, like, is his name Shogun or is his name Shonuff? It might be both. It's not clear. This guy, Eddie Arcadian, hires Shonuff to, like, terrorize the Bronx and, like, fuck with, uh, Leroy Green I think his name is they call him Bruce Leroy um, so he's not even real like the main antagonist of The Last Dragon but he's sort of the like rich white guy who's pulling the strings in The Last Dragon. And he has this girlfriend whose name is something that I don't remember who's basically a Cindy Lauper character. Um, she, I think we see two of the music videos that he has made for her and the songs are like weird and goofy, and, and she's got, I think, like, this high squeaky voice, kind of like Cindy Lauper did at the time, and this outfit, there's a song about going for a test drive that she does, where, in the video that they've made for it, she's got this outfit where, um, like, a lot of human beings have two boobs, and she seems to have two boobs, and there is, like, a taxi cab on each of her boobs so there's like one taxi cab like one like stuffed taxi cab per boob as part of this outfit um, it's it's super bizarre and one of the wild things that happens in, in the last dragon is that she comes to realize that Eddie Arcadian her boyfriend who's trying to get her on MTV by like killing people is an asshole And she has this, like, pretty short speech about how she realizes that he... She, like, thought he was this big man who could get a lot done, but it turns out he's just this, like, tiny asshole from Kew Gardens. Um, And she's, like, tearful. It's, like, kind of moving. Anyway, in Sorry to Bother You, uh, Detroit at her art show is, like... Now for my art performance... I'm going to recite that character's speech to Eddie Arcadian, um, over and over while people throw their cell phones at me, and also some kind of food, and I don't remember what kind of food they're throwing at her, it looks like, like, big beans or, like, maple syrup or something, um, and so she just recites this, like I said, like, kind of brief speech from, what's her name, from The Last Dragon, over and over while people throw cell phones at her and throw food on her. And that was the moment when I was like, this movie is getting the highest award that I can give it. And she's like doing it and people are into her art performance, but Cash like interrupts it. He's like, what are you doing? Why are you having people throw their phones at you and shit like this is weird. And she's like, man, please leave. Like you don't get it anymore. Like." breaking up, and so he goes and he, like, just, like, dives into his work at this point, and he winds up making this giant sale to, like, a Japanese businessman and the other guy, who's, like, his supervisor, I guess, the guy with the burn stash, is like, dude, you've done such a good job at selling like, slavery to this Japanese businessman that the owner of the the work free company, this guy named Mr. Lift wants to invite you to a party that he's having. Like, we fucking did it, dude. Like this is this is the big time. We're gonna go to Mr. Lift's party and just like fucking hop And one thing that I think is interesting is that the, the person who wrote and directed this movie is Boots Riley from this band the coup. Um who's been, like, doing hip-hop stuff for, like, forever, um, is probably aware that there's a rapper named Mr. Lif who is involved in, like, Def Jux for a minute and has put out a bunch of albums and is from, like, Cambridge or something. Like, there's already somebody named Mr. Lif, although Mr. Lif, the rapper, doesn't have a T on the end of his name. Um, So as far as I can tell, there's no connection between Mr. Lift of... Uh, Workfree and Mr. Lift of putting out records. It's just kind of a funny thing because I've never heard of anybody with a name even similar to that before. Anyway, um, Cash and his supervisor, whose name I don't remember, wind up going to Mr. Lift's party and everybody there is like super rich and it's like immediately really awkward because Mr. Lift is this like this like white dude who's really like kind of buff It just looks like somebody who would own a like startup that's disrupting things like fucking work free you get the impression that the like mission statement is like we're gonna disrupt life uh and has got super rich from it and so he's doing like lots of cocaine and uh cash is like i don't know what to do at this party i don't actually really like it here and Mr. Lyft is, like, sitting on a big leather armchair with a bunch of people around him, and he's like, dude, like, tell me about fucking, like, what's, what it's like to be from the streets of Oakland, like, as a white person, I want to appropriate the realness of what I assume your experience in life has been like. Um, so, like, you ever have to, like, pop a cap in somebody's ass, and Cash is kind of, like, no, I never had to pop a cap in anybody's ass, like, I don't actually have any good stories for you about anything like that. And Mr. Lift is like, no, no, come on, like, you're like, you're like, I don't know, again, like, it's like, without using language, like, appropriating African-American masculinity or something, what we're seeing is this, like, enormously powerful white dude, like, trying to, like, socially and emotionally just, like, drain the blood of... Cash and like just like like vampire him without like an awareness or intentionality around the fact that that's what he's doing, um, and so eventually when he's not getting any stories about like gangster shit out of Cash's, Mr. Lift is like, well then you must know how to rap, and Cash is like, I really don't know how to rap. And Mr. Lift is like, come on, you got to fucking rap for us, and Cash is like, I really like I don't know how to rap, and he makes Cash rap, and again, right, like this is funny, but it's also like very real stuff it's like really uncomfortable to watch Uh, and so they all like leave the room with the big leather armchair and they go out and they make like Cash stand on um, on the like steps of the the big like open steps in the center of the foyer of the fucking penthouse mansion that Mr. Lift lives in and they play this beat that's like kind of doofy and Cash like tries to rap a couple times but he's, he's was not lying about being unable to rap. He raps very poorly, and it's really uncomfortable until he just starts, like, basically, like, rhythmically yelling the N-word over and over, at which time, like, the entire majority white audience, like, waiting for him to do shit, or to, like, do something that they can, uh, like, vampire off of. They, like, blow up. They're like, yes, this is what we're waiting for. Like, we're not going to say the N-word, but, like, by doing this, you've effectively given us permission, or like, you know, you've like basically given us permission to say the n-word, or like, we get to like, absorb the authenticity of your like, consequence-less use of this word. It's just like, it's such a, it's pretty funny, and it's also really powerful, just like, like, evocation of the vampiric nature of white supremacy is, like, it's a really well-done fucking moment, and also, like, hard to sit with, um, so, uh, that happens, and then Mr. Lift is, like, still, like, doing a lot of cocaine, and now he's, like, he's got a pistol that he's holding, too, and he, like, wants to have one-on-one time with cash, so the his super bur- supervisor, whose name I guess is probably Burnstash, is like, dude, you gotta come up the meeting with Mr. Lift. So he goes and he has a one-on-one meeting with Mr. Lift and when he sits down at this big desk, uh, immediately Mr. Lift is like, dude, you gotta blow this line. And he gives him this big, like, spiral line of what appears to be cocaine. And Cash is kind of like, yeah, right, so he blows the big line of cocaine. And then Mr. Lift is like, i got to show you this video. And Cash is like, dude, I like, like you need to pee so bad. Mr. Lift is like, no, 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 you need to watch this fucking video. And so he watches. He puts on this video, and I don't remember the order in which this stuff happens, but basically it's a video about work-free and about how like the next step in the work-free program is to have the people who have signed away their lives to work for this organization snort a powder that turns them into half-human, half-horse hybrids, uh, so that they can work harder and be stronger and, like, be less human, and, Cash is like, what the fuck is this, I really, I have to pee, like, you need to put this on pause so I can go and pee, and, uh, like, I don't remember if we see the half-human, half-horse hybrid stuff before or after Cash, like, tries to go to the bathroom. And he's like, dude, I need to pee so fucking bad. And Mr. was like, uh, fine. Like, it's, like, halfway down the hall. Go through the jade door. That's the bathroom. And, uh, so he does. But it turns out instead of going through the jade door, he goes through the olive door. And through the olive door, there's some half-human, half-horse hybrid people called equisapiens who are like chained to a wall and miserable they're like what the fuck man you've gotta let us out like we're really unhappy to be half human half horse hybrids and Cash like freaks out I think he falls down and maybe like one of the equisapiens falls on top of him or something but he like he like urinates in his pants and then Mr. Lift comes and finds him, and he finds him. he's like, dude, you were supposed to go through the fucking jade door, not the olive door. And he's like, I don't know, man. Like, there are more important things right now than the difference between those two shades of green. I wonder if the shades of green is a commentary on capitalism. Anyway, uh, I, that probably doesn't really hold up. Um, they go back, and he's like, dude, here's the deal. Like, Mr. Lift is like, here's the deal. I want to offer you a position work life as the head of the fucking EquiSapiens, and, uh, like, the boss, like, the leader of the EquiSapiens, and Cash is like, I don't want to be a half-horse, half-human hybrid, and Mr. Cliff was like, come on, like, it would be so good, like, it's such a, like, step up for career advancement, he's like, I really don't want to do that, and they watch the rest of the video, and it turns out that, like, the way you become one of these half-horse, half-human hybrids is you snort a chemical that turns you into a half-horse person, and he's like, did you just fucking feed me the chemicals that turn you into a half-horse, half hybrid? and Mr. Lift is like, no, and he's like, uh, and it's, it's upsetting, and we don't know whether he snorted. The, the chemicals that make you into a half horse. anyway the um, party ends he wakes up in his bed, he's alone he's seen like the depths of dehumanization to which this like capitalist shit is willing to go um, he's pretty upset about it he goes and finds his friends his friends are still picketing outside the, the telemarketing building and the people from the power sellers level of the building are still, like, crossing the picket line with the assistance of armed guards. Um, he tells Detroit, Cash tells Detroit what happened, and she's like, dude, you're an asshole, but, like, this is bullshit. Like, you clearly have lost your shit, because that, like, that's not a thing snorting a powder that turns you into a half human half horse hybrid. he's like, dude it's a fucking thing. And he finds his phone and it turns out that somehow he had taken a video of not just the half horse, half human hybrid people but Mr. Lift coming in after Cash had fallen down in that bathroom and being like I'm gonna turn you fucking equisapiens into glue if you don't stop being assholes. And so he's got proof. And so Okay, a couple things. Uh, what we've seen over the course of the movie is that Cash was on his high school football team, but he doesn't really hang out with the guys from his high school football team anymore because all they do now is, like, wear their high school football football helmets and, like, just kind of, like, jostle each other on a basketball court. he's like, that's not the life that I want. I don't want to be, like, a fucking high school football player whatever, uh... So those are characters who we've seen. And then also we've seen a couple times that there is uh, an enormously, like the most popular TV show in the country right now is called, I think it's called Somebody Beat the Shit Out of Me. And it's just people going on TV and getting the shit beat out of them. And so Catch goes on Somebody Beat the Shit Out of Me. gets the shit beat out of him and then they make him like swim through a pool of shit or something but you don't see him swim through the pool of shit but what you do see is after he's swam through the pool of shit he's like covered in shit and he addresses the camera and he's like y'all need to see this video of Mr. Lift from work free and these equisapiens that he's turned people into and him threatening them. And they show it on the TV. So then word gets out. And then uh, I don't know what happens with that. But then he decides that he's not going to cross the picket line anymore because turning people into horse people is evil. Like, that was the line that Cash needed for like the the, the sort of black hole void of capitalism like the, like it's, it's an interesting statement to be like yeah yeah the evils of capitalism and what it does to people isn't enough but if we take it far enough that they're turning people into horse people then I can see that this is not sustainable and I need to reject it Um, like, again, it's just, it's a good critique, right? Because that's what fucking happens. You get a job where you're making enough money. It's really easy to rationalize doing any number of things that are bad for a lot of people. Like, that is the logic of capitalism. And so, one of the the incredible things that this movie does is just to be like, okay, but what if, also, there, like, people got turned into horse people? Um, so stops crossing the picket line. There's also a thing that happens where somebody whips a coke at him and he becomes a meme. There's, like, a video of him getting bonked with a coke can that then people are, like, dressing up as him with, like, shitty, like, black people hair wigs and coke cans stuck to them. Um, maybe that's what gave him the leverage to get onto somebody beat the shit out of me is they're like, ah, it's the, like, got hit by a coke can guy wants to come on so he can, like, promo his shit. So he goes back and starts like being on the picket line again and being on the front lines of like not letting people through and he's like we're not gonna let fucking uh burn stash through and his strike of stroke of genius is that he rounds up the football players that he played in high school with to be a part of the picket line as well and they do manage to hold off the first wave of fucking Blackwater people uh to get through, right? Like, they block fucking sideburns from, your side stash, burn stash. They block certain burn stash from getting through, and then, uh, then, like, a whole other wave of Blackwater people come and eat the shit out of everyone. But they wind up, like, holding the picket line. I don't know if there's any meaningful victory against the telemarketing people beyond the fact that they hold the picket line, but, um, the resolution has already come where Cash has like seen through the evils of capitalism and like the ways that it sucks you in to make decisions and like act against your own and your community's best interests and so he gets back together with Detroit he's like I fucking I get it now other job, I don't know what he's doing and maybe I don't think he goes back to telemarketing or maybe maybe they succeed in unionizing the telemarketers and then they're all making a living wage and that's what he goes back to. That would that would make sense to me. Uh and so they've unionized and probably their wages are better and uh he moves back into Terry Cruz's garage but this time he's got like his nice bed and some of the art from his nice apartment and stuff. And he usually goes back to being a normal person he realizes you don't have to be a rich person. Um and gets back together with, uh, with Detroit, and everybody makes up, and then, um, he, like, makes up with his friend, and he gets, like, a normal car, and everything is, like, back to normal, but better, and then as he's, like, closing the garage door to have, like, make out times with Detroit, and just, like, have it be, like, you know, one of the nice things that this movie does is it doesn't make heterosexual romance be the like solution to problems of state and capital it makes it be just more like a like piece of what the resolution can look like like if your girlfriend is cool and she gets it and then you finally become cool and you get it too like that doesn't mean that like you're getting back to with your girlfriend is the resolution it means like you've actually figured shit out and you're a better person and so cash has become a better person uh that feels unfair because he wasn't like, I guess better doesn't necessarily apply bad, but like, when he started, like, like I keep saying, he, the decisions that he makes to act against the best interests of himself and his community um, are really framed as understandable, you know what I mean, like, he, it's not like he's this like shithead who's like being a shithead on purpose, he's got so little options and so little going for him that like, it's framed as really understandable that he makes, makes the decisions that he does. And also, like, at the end of the movie, he's not somebody who would make those decisions, right? He's somebody who's got, like, fucking backbone. He does see unionizing as, like, a way forward. And so he's, like, back with Detroit, and he's closing the door to the garage. And she's, like, she, like, lays down on the bed, and he closes the garage door, and then he turns around, and then fucking boom, he's turning into a fucking horse person. Like, turns out Mr. Lift fed him horse person powder after all is turning into a fucking horse person title card fucking sorry to bother you like the ending is pretty upsetting and like you kind of can't believe that they turned cash into a fucking equisapien but then like like if you think about it right we should be having like Empathy for Equi-Sapiens as well. And there's a moment actually where I think the Equi-Sapiens, oh, maybe what happens is that they the they stop burnstash from crossing the picket line and then the new wave of fucking Blackwater people come and beat the shit out of all the picketers. But then all the fucking Equisapiens Come and they beat the shit out of all the Blackwater people, and the union wins because of solidarity with Equasapiens, right? Like, that actually is a fucking great message, and I'm so on board with that. And whereas they're initially portrayed as kind of monstrosities, right? With like, man, when you first see the Equasapiens, it's so upsetting, and the, the makeup and everything is so unsettling, and also they have these giant horse cocks. And maybe one of the failings of the movie is that, like, one of the reasons that Mr. Lift is like, you should become an Sapien is because then you would have a giant horse cock like, playing into sort of unavoidable... Is it toxic masculinity to want to have a giant horse cock? One might argue yes, because dicks don't need to be that fucking big. Anyway, um, my, my proposal that it was a failing critique to sort of only address the, like, genitalia benefits of becoming an equisapien in people with outies, but I guess like... It is not presented as, like, a desirable thing to become an equisapien. However, it's, it is presented as a thing that fucking happens, right? Like, under capitalism you can be exploited in a way that you become a fucking equisapien And um, So, one of the things that this movie does by having Cash become a fucking equisapien, do I only, do have I said equisapien once without saying fucking before and I don't think I have one of the things that this movie does is you're like shit, Cash is becoming an equisapien, like he is an extraordinarily relatable character, we fucking love Cash and we fucking love the journey that he's been on and we fucking love where he's gotten to um, now he's a fucking horse dude, uh that's like such a bummer but there is a moment earlier where I think when the Equi-Sapiens bust up the Blackwater people, uh, where Cash is like, I want to thank you and your people for being so honorable to one of the Equasapiens. And the Equasapi guy is like, dude, I'm from fucking East Oakland. Like, we're basically one of you. And so the solidarity between the Union and the Equasapiens is like, it's just, it's another good takeaway, man, we need more fucking solidarity between people with different challenges, we always need more of that, and to see that solidarity come, it's like, it's fucking great, like, let's remind ourselves that even if you're a fucking horse person, you're still a person, um, and people are still being exploited and fucked with under capitalism, it's just, like, it's, this movie's politics are good, and the praxis with which they apply those politics is fucking good. And so Cash starts to become a horse person, and then you get the title card that says, sorry to bother you, and then after the title card, I think maybe you get some credits before you get the like, post credit scene, or maybe you don't even get some credits, maybe it's just like title card and then post-title card scene, but we see that in the video that like a video that cash has taken maybe the same one where we see uh mr lift threatened to turn the horse people into glue uh he punches in a code to get into a room and that's the code to get into mr lift's house and so a bunch of fucking equisapiens bust into mr lift's house with the implication being that they're going to get revenge on mr lift as well and like dude That is how you fucking end a movie. Like, you complicate the shit out of everything. You establish that, like, unions and solidarity are the way forward, and then you get revenge on the fucking capitalist puppet master. Like, that is how you end a movie. Fucking golden dick hole. All right, truck nuts, all right, dick enthusiasts. That's the end of the episode and as the world gets worse every day, don't forget we get to be okay while these fascists choke on the fruit of the hate that they bray till their lives are the only thing keeping them warm while they're chained to their bricks on the floor of the bay. First song was by Hers. This one is by Tender, Defender, please be gayer. Please figure out a way to be more trans for me. Abenaki people who are still here and who have been here for at least 12,000 years longer than anyone of European descent.